Michael Dougherty is one of the ten most performed living American composers. Recordings of his pieces Metropolis Symphony, Deus Ex Machina, and Tales of Hemingway have earned him a total of six Grammy Awards, including Best Classical Contemporary Composition in 2011 and 2017. Dougherty has written music for orchestra, band, and chamber ensemble, and he is currently a professor of composition at the University of Michigan. Michael Doherty, welcome to The Creative Process. Great to be here. So you grew up with a family of musicians um, from, you know, different um, musicians or singers and different uh, uh, backgrounds and genres. What do you feel were the important elements that made you the composer and musician you are today? What were some of those early important lessons? Well, uh... Growing up in a family where music is encouraged is really important. Uh, many of the students who I teach at the University of Michigan, uh, not many, but often they have par- parents who don't support what they're doing. You know, it's not realistic to go into the music business or be a composer. But uh, my father, my father always said, uh, you know, just do whatever you want to do. And I, I think giving that permission to be creative and just pursue whatever my dreams were, and for my brothers, I think was important. And collaboration, you know, the fact that we, we did things together as a family, uh, you know, touring uh, the Midwest when I was a teenager in our band. And just, um, there's an old television show called The Partridge Family in America. You know, it's like a family that goes around in a, in a bus and tours around. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, having support from a family and uh, collaboration are very important uh, seeds for the creative process as you grow older and, uh, and work. Yeah, just having even this, the possibility of being able to say and to point to somebody in your family who has a career as a, an artist or a musician and just to see them thrive or the struggles they go through, but to know it's a possibility, it is so important. Yeah, and, and also... My father never talked about how to make money. Like, in other words, I never made decisions based on money. It was always like, what would make me happy? And uh, I think that's important too, because uh, if you're going to be a composer, especially in concert music, uh, you know, the money can be the main, the main driving force, because if you try to do that, you're going to be unhappy <laughs> so really the again just being an artist to be happy and to discover what you can contribute to society is the way I was brought up and that stayed with me throughout my entire life yes and I think that not focusing on money but thinking about what makes you happy and what you're really passionate and interested in uh, because sometimes as you say as a concert musician it might it's not known for being the most necessarily lucrative uh, professions, although you are one of the most performed um, uh, American per- uh, composers. So, uh, but you, by following your passion, it obviously translates into a quality of music that resonates with people because you're not thinking always commercially, primarily. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've always been excited about uh, discovering new things, um, and uh, you know, and also in the idea of combining art forms. So often, I combine literature and music, or art and music, or or film. I'm a huge film buff, especially of the music, but also the old film stars of the '40s, '50s, and '60s, back in the old MGM Warner Brothers days. Uh, so, uh, my studio here, I have a, I have a huge collection uh, of things. Uh, Everything from matchbooks. I have an amazing collection of matchbooks from Las Vegas from the 1950s. I have incredible. I also collect um, also collect autographs as well. I'm a huge fan of this movie from 1947, Out of the Past, with Robert Mitchum, which was shot in a little town in California, and um, I actually visited there recently. It's in the Sierra Mountains, and the town's still there. And I actually pick up, pick up the autographs of Robert Mitchum, Kirk Douglas. And the other two women in the film and i'm going to make a little and i have a little poster from the movie from the original movie and i'm going to make a little uh, frame it you know i like to do things like that i'm, I'm very connected into american culture and uh and the magic and also uh you know there's also some some dark areas as well you know so you have to take the whole uh spectrum in 
Yes, and your music is very cinematic, and we'll go, we'll get to some of those pieces too. And just speaking of another distinctive voice in American music, uh, Frank Sinatra. Uh, so, here one of your piece of music is a Sinatra shag, and so I think we'll if you would just set it up for before we play a bit. Sure. Well, Sinatra shag, I thought would be interesting because it's it combines uh, contemporary music with, with rock music. And, uh, you know, I, I've, uh, I'm a huge fan of Las Vegas, not Las Vegas of today, certainly, but Las Vegas back in the 50s and 60s. And the top entertainers of America at that time would perform there. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know, just, just something about being in show business and coming out in your tuxedo or whatever, in your, in your fine gown and singing some Gershwin or Cole, Cole Porter tunes, you know, to a, a nightclub audience. That's the way I grew up actually playing for nightclubs. And so uh, I identify with that. And also uh, I studied with a composer, Giorgi Leghetti in Europe for five years. And he's, you know, one of the most well-known composers of the, uh, was one of the most well-known composers of, of the 20th century. Uh, and uh, he encouraged me to incorporate the music I grew up with, with contemporary music. So you, so you hear in the piece, you know, uh, things that contemporary composers do, but there's also elements of like the, the, uh, of the kind of music that I played growing up in, in my rock band called the soul company. So kind of putting those two worlds together. So let's hear.
And so what is it like, you know, really trying to interpret or build upon, expand upon some of these icons um, of American culture, some that have their own sound like Sinatra or Elvis or their icons in a different sense like Jackie O or Superman. And so how do you thread that needle to maybe superimpose your sound but also be in dialogue with their sound or their story? The translation of an idea that's non-musical to a musical idea is is that mystery area, which I really can't necessarily explain, and if I could probably would ruin the process to a certain degree. Uh, there's something about when you're exploring not knowing exactly where it's going to go or how it's going to turn out, which creates a, an element of surprise and an element of, uh, um, you know, uh, intrigue, so to speak. Uh, so... But I, I guess what I do is I immerse myself in a particular thing, whether it was uh, back in, you know, when I wrote Metropolis Symphony, the Superman-inspired piece. At that time, you know, most of the music that composers were writing was very abstract, uh, atonal music with no melodies, no reference to things. And uh, I wanted to connect with some way with the time I was in, and there was a 50th anniversary of the Superman comic books at the Cleveland Museum of Art. And there they had the, the costumes that the characters had worn in, in, in the films, the, you know, and they had all the comic books framed from number one, which goes for like a million dollars now to, to the present. And you could see the artwork. And I remember reading those comics and I thought, you know, that would be a metaphor for imagination and, and doing something different, you know? And that's what I've been pursuing throughout, whether it's writing a piece about a figure who was alive. I wrote a piece called Rosa Parks Boulevard, and Rosa Parks, the famous civil rights icon, was still alive and living in Detroit, and I actually arranged a meeting with her, and I met her at her church and sat through a church service in Detroit and asked her, uh, what's your favorite instrument? Afterwards, we talked very briefly, because she was quite old at the time. And she told me her favorite instrument was the trombone and that she liked the work, Oh Freedom was her favorite piece of music. So I took those elements and wrote a piece for orchestra uh, called Rosa Parks Boulevard. So uh, that's a case where there was someone living where I met them and incorporated or someone who's not living like an Ernest Hemingway in the Tales of Hemingway, for example, the cello concerto where Hemingway uh, spent a lot of time in Northern Michigan. So I went up to, to Northern Michigan where he spent a lot of time in, in the 1920s and 30s and, uh, you know, followed his footsteps, so to speak. I did that with Georgia O'Keeffe, the, the painter for Ghost Ranch. Who, I went to a Ghost Ranch and I went to some of the places where she did her paintings. I visited her home. And so it just gives me kind of a feeling. And then from that feeling comes the creative process. Yeah, that's so interesting because, and then you've also, you know, with Frank Lloyd Wright, you've also been inspired, you've been inspired by nature, you've been inspired then by architecture. And some, how do you get inspired by something that doesn't involve movement? What do you mean exactly? I mean, I think you've been inspired by spaces created by Frank Lloyd Wright. And Mm -hmm. we think about buildings as something that doesn't move or that's quite austere in terms of its shape you know nature moves so i can i see or it's can, you can be inspired by that but how did that work with architect well it's funny that don't ask me why but there's a quote by goethe uh music is frozen architecture don't ask me why i just remembered that uh kind of a trivia thing but um uh yeah i mean in, in the frankly right case a piece called falling water it was not only about his architecture, but about his him as a person and, you know, things that he went through and, and his life. So often we'll read, you know, biographies of, uh, of the art of, of the person that I'm, I'm composing a piece about, you know, if there's movies, movies have been made about them or, or you know, various uh, videos to watch and so forth. There's a ton of stuff on YouTube now, of course. And then I'll, I'll try to visit maybe some of the places that they influenced or that they did their work in or Frank Lloyd Wright's case, you know, Falling Water, the famous house that he created in Pennsylvania. So uh, I just think uh, that's what gets me going. You know, for every composer, it's different. You know, some composers will be into some, you know, uh, algorithmic uh, problem or they're trying to discover new timbres or they're they're trying to come up with a new uh, form or or, or something like that, you know. 
but for me, it's been just the way that, that that's inspired me to write my music, you know, is by connecting with things that are important to me in some way. And often they're non-musical uh, things, you know, so it's quite a long list now. I've been writing for 35 years or so. So it's really been a blast, uh, you know, exploring all these different iconic figures, places and spaces. It must be so interesting to, in a sense, retell certain histories or cultural figures um, as like a mysterious act of translation. I believe Natalie wants to come in. So all your pieces, to me, have like really strong storytelling. And obviously, as like a composer, you don't have the same tools as maybe, say, like a novelist. So I was wondering... um, how do you go about capturing like a moment or an image or a setting with sound? Like how do you use just the tools you have to take the audience on that journey? I mean, it's, it's different from being, for example, a film composer, because in film you're, you're working with, uh, you're writing music where there's often dialogue and sound effects and visuals. So the music is part of the counterpoint of those. So the music can't be too busy. It has to be supporting uh, those elements and it, so that's why the only time the composer ever gets a chance to film music is at the end credits <laughs> or the beginning credits when they're just rolling the text out you know um so when you're a composer of concert music you know you're you're doing everything you're writing the dialogue you're doing the sound effects you're you're doing the acting you're doing the directing you know and uh, you're creating the atmosphere so uh i, I guess you know what if what i frequently do i'll just I often work at the piano. I'll just sit at the piano and doodle around, you know. And um, and then if something strikes my fancy, like I'll be thinking about something, you doodle around. Then I go immediately to my computer, which is right next to me. I have a very large monitor, and I use Sibelius music software, and I will enter that in, what I just did. And then from then on, I you know, it's kind of an osmosis process between the two, between playing, you know, putting it in, listening, that every day uh, when I write, I, I save the file name for that date and I make an MP3 of the sounds, you know. So I use the note performer program uh, that plays, the, you know, the, the orchestra piece I'm writing on or the chamber piece, whatever. Then I will drive around whenever I'm driving around or upstairs cooking or something. I'll listen to that two minutes I compose, you know, over and over again. I listen to it. That could be short. It could be longer. That's kind of boring. I need to add something. So a lot of it is, uh, you know, it's, it's a back and forth and um, a process of in, instincts, you know, to a certain degree. And then uh, composing, that's where, the, that's where all the techniques come in, all the things you learn as a composer, you know, like uh, you learn counterpoint, you learn orchestration, you learn various techniques of manipulating the music. You know, those are technical things that really the typical audience member does, doesn't really care about. That's kind of your own, the things you do to, to build the piece, you know, and, and to create it. But uh, um, I was thinking, you know, when you walk into a building, a new building, you don't care about the electrical and the plumbing and where all the sewer pipes go and, and all that kind of stuff. You just look at the building, right? So when people are listening to music, they're listening to an aspect of music, but behind, behind, the, uh, behind the hood, so to speak, if you look, lift up the car engine, you know, you lift up the, the the, the hood to your car there's a there's all this complicated engine which i could never fix but but all that technical stuff is there to make that car run or to make the building move so it is important to know all those technical aspects but in a way those are hidden to the to the listener and it's interesting because I, I want to ask you about what your kind of inspiration engines might be. Sometimes people have experienced a kind of um, synesthesia or some musicians are inspired by um, images. That's their kind of parallel um, art form that, that's giving them inspiration or others it's really like strongly rooted in story. And so for you, what, what do you find is that other parallel engine that drives you? Other parallel, can you give me an example? Like, a- Well, I mean, uh, friends of mine who are composers are one particular, he looks at paintings and he can um, 
he can hear, and only certain paintings or only certain artworks will suggest a sound and a music, music will grow out of that. But then I imagine that there may be others who, um, you know, get a story, as you say, a character or something. You're talking about creating dialogue, so they have to, that's the kind of thing that plays off their imagination. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's going to be different for each person. You're, you're, in, you're in France, right? Okay, yeah. So in France, you know, the spectral music's very big there. Uh, actually lived in Paris for a couple of years and worked at IRCOM in Paris when Pierre Boulez was alive at the time. That was the leading center for computer music. Now, of course, you, you can own a, a laptop and have all that software loaded into your laptop. You don't need to go to IRCOM anymore. But at that time, back in the, uh, the, back in the late 70s, early 80s, you had to go to a, a computer installation if you wanted to write computer music or, or deal with that, that, that particular world. And Paris was one of the hottest places in the world to be. And, and just like, you know, Hemingway and, and, Scott, and, and many uh, artists, uh, you know, Grant Wood, the painter, and on and on, uh, went to Paris because, you know, they just wanted to hang out. That's, that's kind of what I did. I went to Paris to hang out for a couple of years. But, you know, the aesthetics, like in, in, in France, at least at that time, you know, you had the, uh, the beginning of spectral music, and then you had Boulez's thing, this very, you know, complicated um, atonal concert music, you know, had nothing to do, it's very different from what we're, very different from what we are speak, speaking of here, where narrative can, will be a part of the equation. Um, and I don't know, you just have to, I started having success, if you want to call it that, when I just let my imagination go where it wanted to go. And I didn't uh, look over my shoulder anymore. And I think that's, that's just what, what you have to do, whatever, you know, inspires you. So every day I'm out in about, uh, I'm, you know, always looking around uh, and taking things in and, and, you know, watching what's on the news and, and what's going on and, and what trends are happening. So I'm a very inquisitive person. And I think that's part of this being inquisitive to life. Hi, my name is Natalie Flynn. I'm an associate podcast producer for the creative process and a journalism major at American University. I was initially drawn to this episode because of my interest in music. I've spent countless hours in different band and orchestra settings, and I was excited to learn more about how all that sheet music made its way to my music stands over the years. However, I ended up connecting to Doherty's ideas more through my other passion, creative writing. Not the kind involving notes, but the kind involving words. As it turns out, the processes of writing music and writing stories have some similarities. Two in particular stood out to me. First, the idea of translation. Doherty referenced a quote by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, Music is liquid architecture. Architecture is frozen music. Maybe all art forms are kind of connected in this way, but converting one into another isn't always easy. Doherty often has the task of translating non-musical ideas into music. In my writing, I often have to translate non-literary ideas into words. One of the best examples of this actually is the task of writing about music. A little scene I wrote this past winter comes to mind in which the main character is fully caught up in her favorite song. I had to make the reader feel that music with her just by reading the text on a page. It's similar to how Doherty has to make the audience see, for example, Las Vegas just by hearing one of his pieces. I've also had this experience while writing about things like smells or abstract feelings. I really have to put myself in that moment in order to translate from one sense into another. Secondly, Doherty's words about lifting up the hood of the metaphorical car. I once saw this tweet with pictures of the front and back of a needlepoint design. The picture of the front, with its neat stitches and clear picture, was labeled how the reader sees the book. The picture of the back, a tangled mess of thread, was labeled how the writer sees the book. This is what I thought of when Doherty talked about all the inner workings that the audience will never see. I really related to it. As the writer, it's easy to feel like your piece is a chaotic mess sometimes. After all, you've been working on it since its earliest stages. All the false starts, deleted scenes, reworked characters, and edited plot lines are still with you. It's important to take a step back and remember that the average reader, or listener in Doherty's case, is only going to experience the final product that you put in front of them. 
Creative writing and music are two of my biggest passions. This episode made me realize how connected they can be. Thanks for listening. Now back to the interview. And how do you feel? Because from uh, a young age, you were performing in front of audiences, you know, on television, you know, and at county fairs for stars like Bobby Vinton, Boots Randolph, and and others. So you had this kind of, you were put into the, the limelight to some extent. And how do you feel that or getting to know, you know, what resonated with audiences? How did that feed into your creative process? Well, when I was younger, I, I like when I was a teenager, I was I did perform with some of these famous pop stars of the time, you know, at these fairs that I played the organ at. I mean, the thing is that the, the, the music wasn't wasn't, you know, it wasn't music that pushed the boundaries. It was entertainment, pure entertainment. And, uh, you know, at, at that time, when I would say it was 18, I was listening to Miles Davis, you know, Bitches Brew and and uh blood sweat and tears and you know kind of the avant-garde rock music and also you know i was into jazz you know Thelonious monk and that sort of thing so there really wasn't a much of a place to express that kind of music you know and the music that was being expressed or there was a uh people were interested in tend to be entertainment music you know uh, you know which, which is fun to do and, and so forth but i wanted to do much more than that and also i wanted to work with instruments and once I got to college, you know, I, I really loved the orchestra, especially, you know, I love the, the strings and the percussion and the woodwinds, and the brass and all the all the different kind of sounds that you can get. I was always struck by you know, the sound of the orchestra. It's this very complex sound. And how do you manage that? How do you how do you arrange it and so forth? So um, that kind of led me on to a, a journey of discovering, you know, Gustav Mahler and Shostakovich and these kind of composers who wrote for the orchestra so well. And so I, I was trying to find a way to put it all together. You know, how do, how do I put together playing Oregon at county fairs for famous pop stars of the day to, you know, the avant-garde music of Paris to, you know, music of Mahler and, and this big, you know, the orchestra tradition. How's it all come together? And I think in some of the works, I was able to do that first the Metropolis Symphony and uh, perhaps you could play a cut from one of those. So uh, lately I've been writing a lot of, music for voice and a recent project I did inspired by Woody Guthrie, who was the iconic folk singer in the 1930s and 40s, uh, who traveled around America and sang songs of social justice at union meetings and various other venues to uh, further the rights of workers and to, uh, you know, and, and uh, a fascinating character, Woody Guthrie. And I wrote a hour long piece called This Land Sings inspired by the life of times in Woody Guthrie. I actually went to Tulsa, Oklahoma, to the Woody Guthrie Museum, spent time driving around where Woody Guthrie hung out, and also the migration path. I drove some of that from when, in the 1930s, there was this huge dust storm in 1931, actually, called Black Sunday, where this storm, dust storm, wiped out tens of thousands of farmers and their homesteads, including Woody Guthrie. So he had to leave and he went to California, walking the back roads of America, playing his guitar. So here's a song called uh, Hear the Dust Blow, where I take an, a, an old folk tune and reimagine it, and uh, where we talk about the dust storms of Oklahoma in 1931. Hear the dust blow.
it's so mournful and beautiful at the same time and it's something that's on our mind as well because we have a parallel podcast called one planet it's all about the environment and you know the dust bowl was very much about you know dealing with consequences of you know environmental turmoil which led to the depression as well uh yeah, it, it really call, calls to mind so many things and, and hopefully not futures that we'll have to uh, re-experience. I've done a wide variety of things over the last 35 years. And, you know, if you think about it, uh, you know, uh, the acting careers of uh, someone like a Tom Hanks who started out doing comedies as a youngster and then morphed into doing dramatic roles like Saving Private Ryan, you know, and now, you know, he does dramatic roles and, com- and, and, and lighter roles. And, and, you know, I think as, as a composer, you know, hopefully you, you know, you, it's not just you get better, but you just change. And my early works like Sinatra Shag, Metropolis Symphony, you know, are, are sort of, you know, uh, I don't want to say brash is the wrong word, but they're definitely kind of, you know, very energetic kind of pieces, you know where and and as i've been you know get older the pieces have become more uh, reflective in some sort of ways so uh uh you know which is hopefully is what happens as one you know gets older and experiences more things in in the world and it's interesting because yes our youthful sound is different it's like a instrument that matures and as you mentioned as well as you travel and you pick up things that you learn in different countries and it for you it just wasn't in paris i think you had a full bright scholarship as well you were at that time yeah that's that's how i went to paris back in the 79 yeah and and amsterdam as well and you know how did how did that influence your sound and also as you perform, as your music is performed in these different countries, as you say, certain music resonates with different regions differently. Almost each country has a kind of different sound that you might tune into them. So how how do you inspired when you're, you travel and your music travels? And how is your music's reception in different countries different than, say, it might be in America? Yeah, well, you know, it's very hard to predict about the reception of music. Um, I've still played from time to time in Italy for some reason, you know, and in England, those are the two countries in Europe where I have the most performances, but it's, it's very unpredictable how audiences are going to relate to things. Like in, in Italy, I'm often referred to as the Andy Warhol of, of contemporary music for some reason, but you, in other words, you really can't predict how the music is going to go down. The only thing you can do is just do the best job you can, make it as interesting as possible, get it out there. And then you never know, you know, how it's going to be responded to. So I think if you try to control how things are going to be received, you just, you just can't do that. So you have to be able to let your work go, do it, at the, do it the best you can at the finest quality. I work very hard on the recordings. As you see, I have a lot of recordings out now and available on, the streaming platforms and I've also been working hard on getting videos up as well. And I think uh, having music recorded, that's something when I was a kid, I, I learned music through records. Like when I was in back in Iowa as a teenager, I went to the library and they had records, jazz records in the, in the public library. They had like, you know, John Coltrane and Thelonious Monk. And, you know, if they hadn't had those recordings, I would have never come across those artists and that music. So recordings are very important. Also, what's interesting is that people sometimes only discover your music. So some people are discovering music I wrote back in 19, let's say 80, you know, or something like that. And of course, I'm on to doing different kind of projects. So this, you get this time warp where people are just discovering a piece like, like Dead Elvis, for example, for the first time and say, wow, that's, that's really interesting, you know, but I wrote that piece like, you know, 30 years ago. So Natalie, you have a question. Yeah, um, you talked a little earlier about orchestras and also like the reception of your pieces in other places. I've spent a fair bit of time like in orchestra and concert band settings, but always on like the performer side. So I was curious what it's like for you to hear a piece that you've written be performed for the first time. 
Yes, hearing a piece performed for the first time is always always a bit scary, no matter how experienced you are. I have a world premiere coming up with the Omaha Symphony uh, next week, actually. It's a 30-minute piece called Lift Up Thine Ears is the name of it. But, you know, uh, yeah, that first rehearsal is kind of scary, no question about it. Uh, of course, as you get older, you, you, you have more experience, so you, you, you kind of learn from your mistakes, you know, like, oh, this is how not to over-orchestrate things or, you know, timings of things or, and so forth. And you also learn the, the process of how rehearsals work and, and that sort of thing. But uh, don't, don't let anybody fool you. It's always a, a bit, you know, you're always unsure because until it's played live, you really don't know exactly how that piece is going to sound. That's one of the dangers, well, working with MIDI, which most composers do now with computers and, and sa- sampled sounds for the orchestra. That's how they're writing their music. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily translate exactly how that would sound in real time. So you kind of have to know that you're listening to a computer file you've composed. It might sound a little empty. Gee, I need to add something. But once you put that into the concert hall with reverb and, and so forth, it might be just right. So those are things you, those are things that you kind of learn. And it's so interesting, the things that happen in the moment. And you studied also with Earl Brown, I believe. Just tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, the, the approach to improvisation and uh, how do you, how does that carry over into your composition process? Yeah, I don't, I don't incorporate, I rarely incorporate improvisation to the music I compose but I do use improvisation to create the music. So I often will improvise with the piano and record myself even sometimes, or I'll hum into my iPhone, you know, and that's sort of improvisational. So uh, that, that, that there is an element of improvisation that is in the creative process. I do occasionally use it only if it's a percussion player. And Evelyn, Dame Evelyn Glennie, who I've worked a lot with over the years, I've written two percussion concertos that she's performed and, and plays and we could hear one of the movements where I do leave room for the performer to improvise a little bit. And you mentioned Earl Brown. He was one of the composers in the 60s who, who was part of the school with John Cage, who did open notational music and so forth, open form music where improvisation was, was involved. And, and that was radical back in the 60s uh, in that music. But yes, I did, he did teach a course at, at Yale that I took from him years ago. And he made analogies to, to modern art and, and Calder in particular, uh, the use of improvisation. So we'll listen to a movement from uh, Dream Machine. Here's an example where I do incorporate some improvisation for the soloist, Evan Glenning, because she improvises so well and because it's non-pitched instruments. This is from Dream Machine, the second movement, Rube Goldberg's Variations. Thank you. 
One of the things I did then was go to Northern Michigan where Ernest Hemingway uh, wrote some of his uh, first short stories and spent a lot of time there as a youth. And I retraced his footsteps and so forth. And uh, I was also in Spain and went to the famous bullfighting bull stadium that, uh, that, that he went to a lot, which, which inspired many of his novels. And so here, here's an excerpt up from um, The Old Man in the Sea a short novel he wrote about an old man who tries to go out and catch the prize fish, but in his life, but fails. So here's the beginning of The Old Man in the Sea from Tales of Hemingway for Cello and Orchestra.
in your illustrious career, you've won, is it six Grammys now? Well, the recordings have won six Grammys, and I personally have won two Grammys, yeah. So, but in, in, in rock music, you know, when they say that, the al- you know, they say they have eight Grammys, if the albums would got four Grammys, some of the, you know, some of the Grammys are not for the, they're like for the, you know, like the sound or the mixing, but they still include that as being a Grammy. <laughs> but actually to to get one as a composer is very hard because they only give one to a composer of classical music. So yeah, I was really lucky. One of the things I learned over the years is when you do a project, you never know where it's going to end up. So I always want to do the best job and make it the most interesting thing that you possibly can at the highest level. So when I started out with Tales of Hemingway, um, you know, I, I, I first met the cellist, came up with some ideas, was in my studio as I composed the piece. You know, I had no idea where the piece was going to go. Um, and, and then, you know, the, the piece came, uh, was the world premiere happened in Nashville, it was recorded, <clears throat> the, the CD took off and so forth, and people started listening to it. It got, uh, started be, being played on Sirius XM and started getting actually played a little bit on Airways, which is unusual. And the sales were pretty good. And then the Grammys came along. And then the, the, the recording ended up winning three Grammys, including one for the composition of, of the piece. So it was very exciting to go to Los Angeles. And, and the cellist also won for best of performance uh, by, by a soloist. So it was very exciting to go to the Grammys and, and then, you know, be there. And that was the, the, the culmination. But, you know, it, it always starts with something very modest. And you never know where that's going to end up. Sometimes it ends up with nothing happening, you know, so you never know. But you always want to do the best job you can every time. Well, that's the beautiful, unexpected thing about music and collaborations. It's all these uh, talents coming together and you end up surprising even yourself. Exactly. One of the things I would like to mention about collaboration is that I also work with musicians when I'm composing. So when I compose a piece like Tales of Hemingway, for example, I actually work with cello players. If I'm writing a violin concerto, I work with a violinist. And what it is is that I'll, I'll write, you know, for a week or something. Then I, I, I hire somebody to come to my studio. Then they play live with my computer where I have the orchestra part. And they play live with it. And I actually hear the person play the part. Then I make many revisions, take it up an octave, add pizzicato, let's do a double stop here and so forth. I've been doing that for many, many years now, working with musicians, working with the sound of the, uh, of, of the instrument. So uh, going back to a question that was asked, you know, what's it like to hear your piece for the first time? I often have a pretty good idea because when I'm writing a piece, let's say even an orchestra piece, I will bring in a trumpet player, a trombone player, a tuba player, an oboe, whatever, I'll have them, I'll hire them to come and play through the part, my entire orchestra piece, hear them play. And lots of times I think, oh, I need to add more or this, or I need to put phrasing here and so forth. So it gives it a real time thing, but also working with the sound of the instruments. And that's something I'm very passionate about doing and I, I continue to do today. And that's the only way you come up with, you know, new sounds or write something that really fits on the instrument. And have you, because you spoke about uh, computer electronic music, and so you notice that there is definitely something missing when you don't have that live element of collaboration. Well, there's, I mean, I, what the computer does is it allows you to get a, a kind of a, a sketch of your piece, and you can, you know, it, it plays the, the, the Sibelius program, which I use, is very good. I mean, it plays back things in a very accurate way. It plays all the dynamics, all the articulations, and so forth, and the sounds are, are fairly good, but they're not what it's actually going to really sound like when a real instrument plays. So part what happens is that more and more of the music, especially in, in the film industry, is sounding more and more like the electronic music. In other words, you know, uh, the string parts are like whole notes. Uh, you know, they're not, <laughs> they're playing in first position on the strings. They're really not exploring all the possibilities of what the, what the orchestra could do, where you go back to the 1950s, you listen to the MGM or the Warner Brothers composers. I mean, those people really knew how to write for orchestra, you know, very dramatic, very rich writing for the instruments. So, uh, you know, the computer is lots of things that you can do very well with it. And that's, you know, and you can experiment and, and try all sorts of ideas, especially getting a sense of form, like 
listen to the overall length of something and you get an idea of, of proportions. I think that's helpful. So there are some things that's very good for it, but I've always incorporated working and incorporating in the creative process, working with actual instruments as well. Now, that's very rare. I could tell you there's not a lot of people to do what I do. I know from many of the composers my age and others who work, they don't do what I do, but I've always done that. I've, I've always found it very, very helpful. I think it gives it a human element. And collaboration, again, going back to when I was a kid and I had my rock band and that's how you do stuff. You know, you get five people in a room and you work out the bass line and the drums and the guitar, you know, and it's, it's a collaborative process. And, and jazz is very much like that, too. You know, it's, it's a collaborative process between a group of people. Uh, classical music tends to be a little different where you're, you know, you give somebody a piece of music that's written down and then they play it, you know. So it's a different kind of uh, groove. So I think through that collaboration process of working musicians, it's a way for me to kind of connect with how I grew up playing music as well. And you, I can see how you must be very inspiring for your students. And you really taught some really amazing emerging artists or people who've, who themselves forge wonderful careers and have added much to the, the musical world. So what are some of those things that are important for you to impart to your students? And, you know, how, you know just how do you go about sharing that? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a combination of learning things, what not to do and what to do. So I remember uh, when I was growing up, the way of teaching tended to be more the old, kind of the old uh, German masochistic way where you would be very critical of the students. And that's what I remember my teachers in the past were very, very critical and a lot of negatives. Don't do this, don't do that. Um, Very judgmental. And I just remember being as a student that, that never, really worked with me but that was the way that so much teaching was done kind of a punishment or like going through a boot camp and somehow if you got out the other end you could survive then you might make it you know kind of thing but not everybody's going to be a professional musician you know part of the reason that many people study music is maybe they're going to go they think they're going to do music but they end up doing something else but the thing they learned in music for example my daughter who's 31 now played the bassoon of course because I wrote Dead Elvis and Hell's Angels for bassoons and other pieces. Grew up playing the bassoon, but then when she went to college, uh, she became very involved in languages. Now she speaks Spanish and she speaks Arabic. And, you know, developing ear for music, you know, helped her, I'm sure, learn languages and her, her accents are quite good because she has a good ear, you know. So you never know where your music studies will, will lead you. So just a, just a summary sort of is that I try to stay out of the person's way, you know, try to be positive as possible and I try to uh, give alternatives if they tend to write a particular way I'll say well let's look at some ways different than what you do and maybe you can think about that so uh, you know it's all offering alternatives and you know it's also a it's a very it's like going to a therapist only because America is very different in that we actually have private lessons in Europe my experience was they tend to be group lessons you'll have maybe 10 people in a room for two or three hours in America it's one hour alone with a person in a room so it's more like seeing a therapist and first you have to build trust with that person uh, and that takes a while you know and some everybody's different Uh, some people are very fragile some people are very brash some people have a lot of defenses up uh you know if if they had a relationship with their with their parent or parents that where they were always criticized all the time and they had to be defensive then if you say anything that might perceive as being critical then immediately their defense shields go up and it might come through anger or being arrogant. So you kind of have to learn, you know, how to navigate that. Actually, if somebody's acting a particular way, it's not what you think it is. It's actually something else. And to not things, not take things in a personal way. I think that's probably what's hardest as a teacher is to not do things personally. If somebody decides they want to move on and study with somebody else, or maybe they write music that really you don't like, you know, to not take that in a personal way. I will say that finally that my, one of my teachers, Georgi Leggetti, who I mentioned, who I worked with in Hamburg for two years, said to me, well, you'll know you're writing the right kind of music when I don't like it. <laughs> I thought that was an interesting comment. So uh, anyways, I've been teaching for, geez, 35 years or so. So I'll be wrapping it up probably here in the next few years. But uh, it's been a great great process to work with so many talented students over the years. 
And in closing, for you, as you reflect on your life, what has music given you? And what, as you think about the future, would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? So I think what music has given me is a reason to get up in the morning, uh, even when you don't want to, and uh, to kind of find a way to, uh, it can be a healing or a, an inspiration process to deal with life, because there's lots of ups and downs. I always remember the end of the movie, Gone with the Wind, that everybody dies at the end almost, you know, and, and I'm thinking like, you know, they, they die of sickness or uh, an accident or something. I think, well, how is that possible? That's too dramatic. But actually, you know, you realize as one gets older, those things actually do happen. And uh, so I think music gives us a source of a reason to, to live on and to uh, collaborate and communicate and, and, and have a need for each other. And probably the pandemic has, has made, has reinforced that, that, you know, how important it is that live music or live the experiencing music or, or the arts live is important, you know, because when it once was taken away, then people realized, gee, I, I really do miss that. And as far as the future, uh, it's so hard to predict because things are changing so quickly where music's headed and also the recent calls for social justice within music and so forth. So it's really hard to, to you know, but I guess in the end, uh, the future music, you just want people to carry on the importance that how, how we do need music in our society. We, we need the arts. We need it in public education. We need it in our adult life as well. So, you know, the importance of it and, uh, you know, that, uh, yes, we do, we do need a viola. We do need a flute. Uh, we do need an electric guitar. We need all those things to, to move on with our lives. Yes, the power, beauty. We need beauty in our lives because there's so much else that's um, maybe not beauty. So I want to thank you, Michael uh, Doherty, for sharing your imaginative world with us and discussing the interplay between creativity, education, uh, technique, and reminding us what is so important in this life. And, and thank you for adding the beauty of your music and adding your voice to the creative process. Well, thank you. It was great to be here and wishing you the best of luck with your project. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Yan Michalski Foundation. This interview is conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer and co-host on this podcast was Natalie Flynn. Digital Media Coordinator was Hannah Story Brown. Music used in this episode includes Red Cape Tango from Metropolis Symphony for Orchestra, recorded by the Nashville Symphony. Sinatra Shag for Chamber Ensemble, recorded by the University of Iowa Center for New Music Ensemble. Hear the Dust Blow from This Land Sings, inspired by the life and times of Woody Guthrie, recorded by the Albany Symphony's Dogs of Desire. Dream Machine, Second Movement, Rube Goldberg Variations, recorded by Evelyn Glennie and the Albany Symphony. And The Old Man in the Sea, from Tales of Hemingway, for cello and orchestra, recorded by the Nashville Symphony. All pieces were composed by Michael Doherty. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.